You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 88 of the Apple Insider Podcast, where we bring you the latest news in iPad, iPhone, iPod, uh, Apple Watch, iPod? What am I saying iPod for? It's, what, what <laughs> I mean, it's still selling. I, surprisingly. Okay, so this is the latest news in iPad, Mac, Apple Watch, and iPhone. Joining me, I'm, I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is editor-in-chief of Apple Insider, Neil Hughes. Hey, Victor. How's it going? Amazing. Hey, I'm so glad you made time for this today. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Let's start by talking about a deal for our listeners. Uh, I, I know that some of you listening have actually made these purchases using these deals and saved a ton of money, and I appreciate it, and I, I hope you do too. Uh, it's possible to get $150 off a 256-gig 13-inch MacBook Pro and up to $220 off the first gen of Apple Watch. And you can also get a one terabyte storage for life for $39. So... Let's let's go through this briefly. Uh, there's there's 150 off a 13 inch book, 13 inch MacBook Pro. Uh, B and H is dropping the price of the popular 13 inch MacBook Pro with 256 gig of storage by 150 dollars, bringing the price down to 1349 US. And they don't collect sales tax on orders shipped outside of New York. You're responsible for that. Um, so that's a great deal, and it's it's really the lowest price available from an authorized reseller anywhere by about 50 bucks. And when you add on AppleCare, they will also discount that by $50. If you liked the very first Apple Watch, you can get one for $200 to $220 off the original list price. So, for instance, uh, a 42-millimeter space black stainless is now $399, or the um, stainless with the white sport band. They're, they're also, yeah, they're $399, and there's a product red sport band one for uh, $329 in the 38 millimeter size. Take a look if you're interested in the previous version of the Apple Watch. Zools, Z-O-O-L-Z, has a complete cloud storage solution that they're selling for $39. That's almost 98% off their regular pricing for one terabyte for life. Now, I, I don't know a whole lot about Zools. I have yet to use it, but I'm thinking that one terabyte for life is not terrible. There are all sorts of other deals that I'll go ahead and link in the show notes, and please enjoy those. Now, Neil, you reviewed the new Apple Watch, the Series 2. I did. Now, first of all, is is wearing it on the wrist any different? No. Okay. Does it feel any faster when you're running the same operating system? Absolutely. Um, so, So you would say that the dual core totally makes a difference? It does. Uh, the way that I portrayed it in the review is this. Uh, this year's upgrade is a great upgrade. If you don't own an Apple Watch yet and you're looking to buy, you can buy with confidence. This is no longer uh, something where you're waiting for uh, you know Apple to kind of get it together, wait for the second generation. The platform is mature enough now that you can feel pretty happy with, with a watch if you're buying now. If you own the first generation watch, I would wait. The reason for that is, although the new one is faster and has GPS and all of that, uh, watchOS 3 is such a significant improvement in every way, including speed and performance and all that, that you will see a bigger difference in updating your watch than you will in buying a new one. So that is to say, going from watchOS 2 to watchOS 3 is a much bigger leap than going from first gen on watchOS 3 to second gen on watchOS 3. You get what I'm saying? Just updating the OS on your existing watch is a big upgrade and will 
largely satisfy your most of your needs. The, the software update fixes so many things for you that you don't necessarily need to sell it and splurge on the new hardware. And you don't get that many new features with the new hardware that most people would want to upgrade. So Okay, so what features do you get? So the new watch has uh, dedicated GPS, uh, true waterproofing, uh, and support for uh, 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 swimming modes when exercising, and uh, faster processor, an S2 dual-core chip, uh, a brighter screen. Uh, there's a second mic hole on it now, which helps with uh, Siri and things like that. Um, and other than that, that's it. Uh, it's the same watch, the same storage, the same capabilities, the same design. It's a little bit thicker. Uh, the same heart rate monitor, the same uh, bands, uh, the same everything. Um, now, the brighter screen, I never really had a problem with the screen on the first one. I always had the, the dimmest setting to maximize battery life. Not an issue for me. Storage hasn't changed, so that's it. Uh, the thickness, you can't even really tell. You have to put them side by side to tell. It's the same thing. Uh, the GPS is great. Uh, I'm not a swimmer, and I couldn't test it out because um, my gym doesn't really have a pool, and I live in New York City, and they already closed the pools here. So, uh, But people, I, I did solicit some comments on Twitter from, from folks uh, to find out uh, their experiences with swimming. Uh, there was a guy who uh, contacted us who would run a marathon with the new Apple Watch um, and was telling me about his battery life and stuff like that. Generally speaking, um, the performance of the watch in terms of battery is comparable to the first gen. If you're pushing it to the limit using GPS and using Bluetooth uh, without your phone on a run, then you're going to significantly drain your battery. But it seems like if you're not using it for uh, music and you run a marathon, you'll get through a marathon with GPS on your watch, which is good. Uh, but I would say, you know, if you're the type of person who works out for an hour, an hour and a half in the day, you'll probably want to charge your watch while you shower afterwards to kind of get through the rest of the day. Um, and that's if you're using GPS, of course, and Bluetooth for music and stuff like that. It's faster. You know, I did side-by-side -side comparisons with the first-generation one. Um, you could count sometimes to six or seven on the first-gen watch, uh, opening an app if you haven't opened it in a while, um, for it to come fully open. Um, on the new watch, uh, if you've opened it recently, it's almost instant. Um, apps that you haven't opened yet might take anywhere from two to five seconds. Um, but generally one to two seconds an app opens on the new watch. Generally three to five seconds on the old watch would be your average for app time to open. So, I mean, it's faster, but things were so excruciatingly slow with watchOS 1 and 2 that watchOS 3 is really the biggest upgrade of all. It kind of steals the show from the new watch. If you don't own the first-gen watch or if you're a big outdoor runner, biker, swimmer, whatever, uh, then you should definitely consider the new watch. It's great. I'm happy with the purchase because I'm an outdoor runner and I don't want to bring my phone with me. Uh, but for most people uh, who either don't mind bringing their phone with them or aren't outdoor runners or just want the notifications or maybe you're just interested in the speed, stick with the first-gen, wait for the third-gen next year. You'll be happy. And have you gone for a run with the new hardware? Yes. So the there's a few things to note here. The GPS works as you would expect. So we've talked about this on the show before, but for those that don't know, GPS takes a long time to get a signal lock, like as long as five, 10 minutes sometimes to get a signal lock. And if you're, you know, in a bit in a city or in a, a area where, where it doesn't have a lot of uh, view of the sky, then it's even longer, potentially, you may just not get a lock. And so 
I was curious to see how Apple was going to get around this because uh, there's technology called assisted GPS, which in your phone, for example, it gets you a quicker location lock by using a number of things, known Wi-Fi networks and triangulates data with cell networks that you're connected to. So it can say, oh, you're connected to this cell, that cell, and that cell, so you must be in this proximity. And it helps to narrow down your location faster so that uh, before you get a GPS signal lock, it knows generally where you are. And it works really well. Um, on the Apple Watch, uh, the Series 2, it has GPS and it has Wi-Fi, but it doesn't have a cellular radio. So it can triangulate your location with the Skyhook Wi-Fi uh, stuff that helps. It can triangulate location with GPS, but it cannot do it with cellular data. So one of the tricks I I've read, Apple hasn't really disclosed, it's kind of a secret sauce as to how it's working on the new Apple Watch. But one of the things, and this makes sense, is... When your watch loses connection with your phone, it receives the last known location from the phone, from its own you know, cellular uh, location, and it uses that to help more quickly narrow down your location when you go on a run or a bike ride or whatever. So after you finish a run, you can open up the Workouts app on your iPhone and you can see the map and see how accurate the GPS was. It's good is basically the way that I would put it. It's not perfect. Apple did not solve the problems of... GPS and its slowness because they would have to put satellites up in the sky to make that happen. They just can't do it. Um, but, you know, like, for example, I look at my run and it might show me on the wrong side of the street. But other than that, it's accurate enough that no one's really going to care. And by the way, you're going to run into these exact same problems with any GPS watch and even any phone. Your phone has the exact same problems. I'll go for a run and use RunKeeper on my phone, and sometimes it shows me running in the middle of the river. So uh, it's not perfect, uh, but don't expect it to be perfect with any device because there is no perfect device for that. So, so, so what's the workflow here? You start a run on your watch. You leave the phone at home, you go for a run, and when you come back to the phone, your GPS data synchronizes back to the phone and it paints you the map? Yep. So you – Apple, it doesn't – so like there, if you get a Garmin watch, for example, or I tested the Microsoft Band before and that has GPS in it, what they'll do is they'll be a little more forthcoming and say, oh, we don't have a GPS lock yet. Apple being Apple – doesn't want to confuse you. They want to make the user experience well, as pleasant as possible. Why would you get such a disappointing message, right? Right. So Apple just doesn't tell you what it's using for your data. There is, In fact, there isn't even a currently tracking your location icon on the screen like you get on an iPhone. So on an iPhone, in the upper right corner, you get a little compass arrow letting you know when an app is using your location. There is no such indication on the watch. Um, you wouldn't even know that you were having a difference between the first-gen and second-gen watch if you didn't know that you bought the second gen watch because you can run without your phone with the first gen watch. It just guesstimates your distance based on the pedometer in it, which is way less accurate than GPS, obviously. So it doesn't have any indication on the screen whatsoever that it has a GPS signal, how strong the GPS signal is, anything. It just wants you to trust that it works. And I can't really complain about that because it does work. I check the maps. They're relatively accurate. They're not perfect, but they're good enough. I mean, it knows my path. It knows where I went. And there's some special sauce going on behind the scenes that Apple is cooking up that makes it work. Um, but that's really that's really what it is. It's not perfect, but anybody that is expecting it to be perfect doesn't understand how the technology works. You're going to have those same issues if you were to run with your iPhone. So the, the short of it is it's good. Now, there are some quirks that still need to be worked out. Um, using music on your Apple Watch is not an ideal experience. Um it's designed to prioritize playing music from your phone. Uh, so 
if you transfer music over to the watch so you can use it without your phone there, you're limited to two gigabytes, which is fine. I mean, it's not meant to replace your phone. I get that. But you're also limited to one playlist that syncs, and that's it. So if you want to have multiple playlists on there, for example, you can't do that. You have a watch playlist, and that's what transfers over, and it's limited to, I think, 200 songs or two gigabytes, uh, either or. Uh, you have a choice on there. Um, and then when your watch is not in connection of your phone, uh, it'll default to the music that's on the watch. But if your phone is still within range, you have to do a firm press in the music app and then change the source to load music from on the, the phone or um, from the watch. I'm sorry. Uh, the syncing takes a while, too, just because of the slower processor on the watch and it does it all wirelessly, stuff like that. Um, and the biggest issue that I've had, though, in using just the watch with running, and this applies to the first Gen 1 and to the new one, is Bluetooth. So when you pair a device with Bluetooth, it pairs with one device. So if you pair your headphones with your phone, for example, and then you decide you want to go for a run or something and leave your phone behind, you have to unpair, then go into pairing mode, then open up settings on your watch, then reconnect it. But, but Neil, that's a solved problem. <laughs> it is if you want to buy a pair of Beats headphones, uh, of which there is only one available right now, the Solo 3, which no one is going to want to work out with the Solo 3 because right, it's a giant. Right, the Power Beats 3 for the, uh, the workout. Which are not yet available. So I'm excited to get the Power Beats 3. I'm going to get them when they come out and test them to work out with them. I have a set of Plantronics headphones, and the first time I went for a run with them, just connected to my Apple Watch Series 2, was a complete disaster. Uh, just constant dropouts, disconnection issues, you name it. All kinds of problems was unreliable. Every two seconds, the song was cutting out. I finally just turned off the headphones. I tried resetting the watch. I stopped running, restarted the watch, repaired, unpaired, repaired. I did it all. Didn't work. Came home, reconnected the headphones to my phone, opened the Plantronics app. Lo and behold, there's a firmware update. Okay. Install the firmware update for my headphones. Go for a run again right after that to test it out. Well, it worked a lot better. Still a few dropouts, but okay. Then I went for a run the next day spotless performance, not an issue, none whatsoever. And I was like, oh, great. Next couple days, spotless performance. Day after that, absolutely terrible. Cutting out issues all over the place. And so what this really boils down to is there are problems with Bluetooth. And I can't pin those on Apple because this isn't really about the the watch or anything. There are so many combinations of headphones out there. There are so many environmental circumstances that are an issue. Well, and you don't know if your headphones are using Bluetooth 2.1 or 4.1 or what variant that's going to make this problem less of an issue or or what. Really, you need to be using uh, for for best you, best results. You want to use something with Bluetooth 4 or 4.1 in it. Um, because those conquer some of the range issues and also add power management to the Bluetooth headset that that wasn't formerly there in the earlier versions of Bluetooth. And if you get one of Apple's or the Beats units when they become available, right, that's going to overcome this as well. Right. So one of the things that I can do to consistently get my signal to drop out when it's in a bad, having a bad day, is put my arm down at my side. I wear my, my watch on my left wrist and turn my head to the right cuts well, out the signal. Neil, this is a very easy thing to explain. You as a human being, right, you are a human, right? Some, somewhat. Okay. As a human being, you're a big bag of water. Oh, I know. I know. And radio waves do not transmit well through big bags of water. And this is why when uh, you, for example, in New York City, you go on the train and everybody's got their wireless headphones and their wired ones and their Bluetooth is on and everything's connected and there's a big, bunch of big bags of water, not to mention everything else, you know, flying uh, through tunnels, 
right. the signals drop out all the time, even with more powerful Bluetooth devices like bigger headphones and a bigger phone with a bigger battery, more capable. Well, they, uh, b- bigger does not mean more power. You, you have more battery life, so you have a longer battery life. But the transmit power applied to the antennas is all regulated by the FCC, and, and no one is putting out more antenna power to boost signal because that would be violating the FCC. So they're, they're all equal in that respect. Well, you should just know if you're getting an Apple Watch that depending on where you're running and what the environmental conditions are and what your headphones are, you may run into problems like this. And like with the iPhone 7, there is no headphone jack on the watch, So, which is fine. I don't want there to be a headphone jack on the watch. I don't want to. Yeah, that'd be awkward. Yeah, no. But, there but, was a TV watch in 1984, and they ran the TV antenna up your arm right. to be able to receive signal. We're not doing that again. So you got to know these limitations, and, and, I, and I detail all this stuff in the review just because there, it's not perfect. We're getting there. And this watch, especially the watch OS three is a great update. I'm really happy with it. Um, and I think most people are gonna be very happy with it as well. If you know the limitations and you know what you're getting into with an Apple watch, you know, that the third party app situation is not particularly great, then I think you're going to be happy with it. One of the things that I've done, um, since I got the new watch is, um, and especially with watch OS three, because now you can swipe from the edge of the display and switch between watch faces. So I have come up with a series of watch faces for specific purposes, um, so I, my default watch face is, um, I use weather underground for a complication in the upper left. It's the, uh, I'm using the, uh, simple watch face. And so I, I really like that. Oh, I'm setting off Siri here. Okay. Um, so I, I really like that um, the, uh, the in watchOS 3, you can do different complications for temperature and conditions, but they take up two complications on your watch face. So uh, I could use Weather Underground now, which combines them into one complication. So you can get both conditions and temperature in one corner, which frees up another complication. Um, and then in the upper right, I have uh, my mail. And in the lower left, I have my activity tracker, the, the rings. And in the bottom right, That's- I have music. So, so that's, that's all great. I want to move on from the watch. So let me give it, get your verdict here. R- repeat for me. Buy or not buy? You going to buy this? Is this a watch you recommend people buy? Yeah. If you okay. don't want an Apple Watch, then buy. Okay. So if, if you have already got an Apple Watch, you don't need this one. If you don't, this is the one to get, right? There you go. Okay. iPhone 7. Did you have the iPhone 7 in your hands? I do not. <sighs> all right. I held one in my hands. I don't have one yet, but I've held it, and I've used it a little bit. And on the whole, I think it's a really impressive phone. Now, Dan wrote about this, right? We published Dan's review, and Dan's view on this is that it's got a significantly better camera, that the the 3D touch throughout the whole iOS 10 and the new home button make a huge difference, not to mention water resistance, right? There, there are six major enhancements over the previous phones. And, and let's be fair, the iPhone 6 and 6S were the world's top-selling smartphones. Um, you get a new home button. You get a new 3D Touch haptic interface that's got a new Taptic Engine powering it. And that Taptic Engine powers the new home button and everything else about the screen for the Taptic hate feedback. You get the wide-color retina display. You get the A10 Fusion processor that's got the, the quad cores, two for going fast and two for going slow. And you, you get either two or three gig of RAM and larger batteries. You, you get, get a new cameras. Jet black finish. 
Well, some people get a glossy jet black finish. That's the most popular option. It's also though the one that's look at the longest delay on it. Uh, and and it and also as we were talking about, but I was about to delete that bit of the conversation. Uh, water resistance. So there's a lot that's new about this for for a phone that some people have said isn't that much different. There's a lot of improvement here. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great phone. I think anybody that is in the market to buy a phone right now is going to be very happy with it. Um, I think that uh, anybody expecting, you know, revolutionary changes every year is uh, has unrealistic expectations for what can be done with annual updates to technology. But between the, you know, uh, uh, the force-sensing home button and the... Uh, improved cameras, especially in low light, the water resistance, the uh, the new polish on the jet black finish. Uh, there's a lot there to like, and people are, are very excited about it and very happy about it. I think the main selling point for most people seems to be the color, um, at least in the uh, anecdotal stuff that I've seen around. Uh, people are talking most about the new matte black and jet black colors and kind of a return to that. And that's something Apple's been doing for years to allow to people to have their status symbol of knowing which color phone, you know, which if they have the new model, they have the new color. So last year, rose gold was very popular. This year, black is very popular. Um, and they're kind of doing the same thing with the Apple Watch, too, where uh, uh, bands go in and out of season and style. And that, that's an easy way for them to uh, generate some excitement for new product. Yeah. And, and besides just the phone, iOS 10, which ships on this phone, has a ton of new improvements. I mean, I count over 40 different things going on in iOS 10 that weren't there before. Yeah, uh, iOS 10 is a great improvement, and uh, it really makes 3D Touch a lot more useful. Um, And I really like the new control center um, and the access to uh, HomeKit devices and stuff like that. Um, The the lock screen widgets are good. Uh, Actionable notifications are good. Um, there's a lot to really enjoy in there. The, the messages stuff, uh, love or hate it, uh, depending on how much you've been inundated with stickers and what have you, um, are significant improvements as well. And I, I think it's pretty good. In terms of the iPhone 7 specifically, what I'm most excited to see is how developers uh, take advantage of the new Taptic engine, which is the ability to have vibrations uh, through uh, apps and certain functions. So this is something that's been in Android phones for years, really since they launched the haptic feedback. But Apple is attempting to do it in a more subtle way. So if you look at the the inside of the iPhone 7, this new haptic engine is rather large. It's a big vibration function hardware inside of there. And it does all kinds of things from giving you a buzz in your pocket when you get a text message or a call to simulating the feeling of a click when you press on the home button um, to now if you swipe down from notification center at the top of the screen, uh, there's kind of a, a, a little bump as it uh, as it falls down and lands at the bottom of the screen, uh, giving kind of a physical interaction in addition to what you see virtually on the screen. So this is a way for Apple to kind of uh, blur the lines between the digital and the physical and make it feel like you're interacting with stuff in a way that's a little more personal. Like I said, this has been on Android phones for a while, but Apple's doing it in a little more subtle of a way um, with some with, with a more advanced uh, vibration function. And um, 
yeah, it, it, it'll be exciting to see now that they've opened this up to developers how they start to tap into it and how apps take advantage of it. But much like 3D Touch before it and everything else that uh, Apple uh, introduces, it takes a while for developers to kind of catch on and add support for it. So it, it'll take a bit of time for the iPhone 7's unique features uh, in terms of hardware to really show up in software. Yeah, and you know things that are, are going to take advantage of it are things like the wide color display, right? Right, and and of course it also has a camera that can handle that that wide color gamut, um, and it makes a big difference, right? If you take photos under decent light and ask people to tell them apart on a laptop screen, it'll be difficult because well the laptop screens don't have that wide color gamut, but when you're sharing them and viewing them on another iPhone 7 or an iPad that has that that wide gamut, you will see the difference that they make, right? And it's it's Facebook and Instagram both were were going to adopt that specification for sharing wide color photos. Interestingly not a true tone display though, just a wide color gamut. Um yes. And and we've had some listeners in the past who've been very, very up in arms about the True Tone display. Well, you can always turn it off, so. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Forgive me. But, uh, you know, it's it's important to note that these kinds of things happen over time, that these kinds of things happen where they're appropriate, right? If If we're using the iPad and under different lighting conditions and need to use it to really view photography and things like that. Um, then it makes sense for it to be there. Maybe it doesn't fit in the iPhone yet. Maybe it gets there slowly. I mean, if anything, it makes more sense to put it in the iPhone because that is the device that you're going to be using outdoors and in various lighting conditions. You know, you wouldn't necessarily want it on an iMac or something that's in a room where the lighting isn't going to vary as much. And an iPad, yeah, you'll bring it outside, but you know, doesn't it's not as portable as your phone. Um, you have to think that Apple wants to do true tone on an iPhone just because of the nature of what they're doing. Uh, I would imagine that it's just one of those things where they couldn't cram the technology down small enough to fit into a phone yet. Yeah. Now, Consumer Reports said that the new phones seem to perform no better than the iPhone 6S for still photos. Um, and that may be that reviewers don't know exactly what it is that they're seeing, Right when it comes to the expanded color palette or when it, it comes to, com- you know, they're, they're comparing one photograph as opposed to all of the different parts that go into comparing photography, right? Uh, DxO, for example, has their own camera, but they also have a site called DxO Mark where they score and review cameras. And when you're evaluating a camera, you want to evaluate on its color gamut you want to evaluate on its ability to uh, capture in low light. You want to evaluate on texture, noise, artifacts, the flash, exposure, and contrast, and, and all of these things, right? And so DxO went ahead and evaluated the iPhone 7 and gave it a very high score. Uh, the, it says that with a very few weaknesses, the iPhone 7 secures a podium position with one of the top three scores among all the mobile phone cameras they've tested. And a lot of our commenters were, were really upset by this statement, right? Because they said, well, no, there, there are three Android phones ahead of it. But what those people overlooked is, is that you, you evaluate across all these different metrics, and some do better than others. The iPhone 7 is a pretty strong all-around camera uh, that does very well in, in all of these areas. Some of the others do very well in some, but not all, and that affects the scores. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's it, some have strengths in certain areas, yeah. 
right? You know, you remember the old Nokia Lumia 1020 where they stuck a big honking camera lens on the thing that stuck out from the phone? Yeah, it was like a 40 megapixel or something. Yeah. And that was a great camera for some situations. It was it did very well with low light. It did very well with some other things, but the autofocus wasn't very good for some things. And so it it you know, you'd think, well, gosh, they stuck that big honking lens on there. It must be an amazing camera. And it was for some specific situations, but it scored lower because it, it had those uh, those detriments. The iPhone 7 is a, is a consistently good all-around camera that is better than the iPhone 6S in most ways and is, is, is well worth it. I, now, I compared to the, uh, their scores for the DxO camera that you have, their, their accessory camera. Right. And the iPhone 7 got a higher score than their own camera. Well, I mean... <laughs> I grant you that there's a year's worth of time difference between releasing yeah, them and things two like years that. Old. But, but very impressive. Or at least I was impressed by it. You know, to be able to, to top all of the competition despite smaller sensors is, is an impressive achievement. It's, it seems like it's a great camera. I think the real leap forward is on the 7 Plus with the dual lens and... And with a forthcoming iOS 10.1 update that's going to add uh, support for portrait mode where uh, it takes the background and makes it out of focus. Um, so it's just going to get better. Um, it's a shame that it's not on the smaller phone. Um, certainly for someone like me, that's what I would like to see. But uh, for those that like their bigger phones, I think that uh, the 7 Plus is a great camera upgrade. And, you know, you can do a lot of these kind of things with the uh, the smaller phone and apps. For example, there's an app called Big Lens that will allow you to go ahead and, and blur the background to attempt to get that same kind of effect. Uh, it doesn't work in quite the same way, and the effect results are not the same, but it'll get you there if, if that's what you're after for sort of an artistic kind of photo. The actual cam, you know, there's there's nothing like using the actual camera and the technology and the two cameras to do it. It's not going to top an, a DSLR, but I, I think the world of point and shoots has come to an end. Yeah, if it wasn't already dead and buried, it is now. Yeah, this is the nail in the coffin. Tell me about the DJI drone. You you went to DJI's offices recently, didn't you? Yeah, we should mention, though, uh, before we move on, that people should uh, definitely check out Daniel Aaron Dilgler's uh, in-depth review of the iPhone 7 and iPhone 7 Plus. Um, he got his hands on both of them um, in the jet black finish. Um, and you can see all kinds of benchmarks and photo comparisons and everything. Check out the show notes. You can <clears throat> definitely uh, read his review. It's, it's very good and uh, very worth your while if you're looking to buy a phone. Uh, yes, so uh, I went uh, this week and uh, uh, last week and met with the f kind folks at DJI, uh, who this week have announced a new drone called the Mavic Pro, which is a uh, kind of ultra-portable, foldable drone that you could fit uh, very easily into a small bag, uh, which is a huge change from their previous Phantom drones. Um, I've been using and, and testing DJI drones for years now, um, and they make a good product. Um, and the main concern I've had and the main issue I've had with their products has always been the size of them. So a few years ago... I, they, they sell a backpack kind of thing you can fit the old drones into. Yeah, it's I mean, it's huge. Um, it's a backpack. I took a Phantom 2 Vision Plus, I believe, to, uh, on a trip a couple years ago, and it was literally my entire carry-on. I mean, it took up the whole carry-on bag. So what is the size of this new thing? How small is it? It's about the size of like a 
a big uh, 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 plastic or aluminum water bottle, like one of those big oversized water bottles. That's what it folds up to. And then it unfolds to a pretty typical drone size. I think it weighs about two pounds. Um, and it has a, a collapsible uh, controller as well. Um, and swappable battery, integrated 4K camera with a gimbal for super stable footage. Um, I mean, uh, from a personal perspective, it's basically everything that I've been wanting in a drone for a while. Um, you know that I like things to be small and portable, and I can stow them away and put them in a backpack if I need, and not have them, you know, take up a lot of space. Um, and this is really accomplishing that in, in all those ways. You can easily put it in uh, uh, the YouTube star. I, Justine, was there, and she was showing that she had her in her typical daily purse. She had the the, uh, the Mavic Pro in there. So um, it's interesting because they announced this just a week after GoPro announced their Karma drone. Now, I came away from the GoPro Karma announcement um, impressed. Uh, it was better than I expected, especially the fact that they have a removable gimbal that you can now attach to the other series of mounts from GoPro. Uh, but these are two companies going in two very different directions. you got to remember DJI in their early days was dependent on a GoPro. You had to bring your own GoPro to attach to their drone, and they just handled the flying. But they have since become a camera company. And very much so competing with GoPro in that area uh, where uh, they make all kinds of cameras that attach to uh, handheld gimbals, uh, drones, that sort of stuff. So with the GoPro, you can get one for $800 and then you got to buy your own camera or you can get one with the Hero 5 Session for $1,000, but that doesn't ship till next spring. Or with the GoPro Hero 5, it costs $1,100. Now, the DJI Mavic Pro starts at $750. That includes a 4K camera, so $50 cheaper than GoPro. I'm sure that wasn't an accident in how they positioned it. It doesn't yeah, come, funny how that works. It doesn't come with a controller, though, for $750. You have to control it from your iPhone, which means limited range only over as far as your Wi-Fi can go. Now, now hold up, because you sent me a picture. You texted me a picture from this event where you had this giant contraption on top of your head. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let me let me finish and say that if you get it with the controller, which is the way that I would recommend doing it, um, it's a thousand dollars for the Mavic Pro and the controller. And then the controller allows the drone to connect to your phone over uh, propri- they ditched Intel's uh, Lightbridge and they have their own proprietary wireless technology, so it transmits up to uh, seven kilometers away. Uh, HD video. So yeah, it's pretty impressive. Oh. So if you're if you're looking at this, I would definitely recommend the one with the controller. I don't think the 751 that just is controlled by your phone is the way to go. But yeah, they did also announce a set of goggles there. Uh, the DJI goggles are hilariously oversized, especially when you consider how compact the uh, Mavic Pro and the controller are. Uh, they don't do 3D. They have stereo left and right eye pieces in HD, but because the, the drone itself only has one camera, it can't do 3D. But the most interesting thing of it, I think, is that you can connect multiple headsets to one drone. So from, you know, seven kilometers away or whatever it is, you and a friend could both have these ridiculously giant headsets on and be viewing the footage from it. So I tested it out while I was there and put this thing on my head. And sure enough, the drone that they were flying around in the venue there was showing me live footage from it. And it was cool. Um, How many people can you pair to one drone? They showed two. two? They showed two. I don't know if if they can do more, but it was also sending video to the iPhone of the guy who was controlling it. So it's sending to at least three devices at that point, to two headsets and to the phone. So this sounds like it'd be cool for drone racing. 
Oh yeah, definitely. And the and the Mavic Pro has a sport mode that goes up to like forty two miles an hour or something. So yeah, if you're into drone racing, uh, this is probably pretty exciting. But they didn't announce any details on the goggles in terms of uh, when they're going to launch or what they're going to cost. So my guess is they may not launch this fall. Uh, they may be more of an early 2017 thing. But the Mavic Pro uh, is launching uh, in uh, just a few weeks, uh, October 15th. And DJI has a very close partnership with Apple. So starting November 2nd, um, they're going to be training Apple Store employees to kind of show off the Mavic Pro. And you'll be able to go into participating Apple stores starting November 2nd and get your own hands-on demo from experts in the store at Apple. So, um, you know, comparing it to the, the GoPro, um, I like it better than the GoPro, but I think if you're heavily invested in the GoPro ecosystem and you want to get a Hero 5 and you really like that gimbal, then maybe the the GoPro Karma is a better option for you. Um, I really like the GoPro and I like the gimbal. Uh, the drone is a little big, and the big problem for me is that the GoPro drone doesn't have any of the autopilot or autofollow capabilities of the DJI one. So DJI has worked very hard to develop their iPhone app and iOS app uh, to have features where you can tap on a person or an object or an animal or whatever, and it will track that um, from different settings that you can choose. You can have it track it from up above, down kind of lower to the side, go 360 degrees. They even have a feature where you can have the drone fly out and look at you, and you can hold your fingers up in a kind of a square uh, to send a gesture to have it take a selfie, and then so it flashes to let you know, and then it waits three seconds, and it takes a photo of you from the sky. So they have all kinds kinds of cool tracking technology that they've developed that GoPro just doesn't have. With GoPro's drone, you have to fly it yourself. So depending on what you're looking for in a drone and what your needs are, I think that the GoPro is still a good product, but I think DJI's got the more complete package. Very cool. So the other thing that happened in the news that I liked was the idea of New York City restaurateur Danny Meyer. He's, He's upending the hospitality industry by equipping everyone in his restaurant with an Apple Watch. Yeah, it's uh, uh, pretty pretty logical use, I think. Basically, the managers are going to be wearing Apple Watches, and they will kind of silently get notifications, a little tap on their wrist when you know something is needed for a customer or whatever. And uh, the idea is that it will help improve service. And it's a logical extension of what the Apple Watch is good at, which is discreetly notifying you of things from your phone or whatever um, that you might uh, want to be, have brought to your attention. Yeah, and I was actually in a restaurant in California last week and saw that everyone serving in that restaurant was wearing a, a off-brand, non-Apple smartwatch. And they were all using them the same kind of way to notify each other of you know dishes being served, dishes being ready in the kitchen, VIP walking in kind of thing. And so it's, it's definitely a thing that's happening. And... I think it can only lead to a better experience as a, as a restaurant goer. Yeah, I, I think it, it's a logical extension of, of the platform in a way, you know, where you saw a lot of iPads in the classroom and and uh, in workplaces where people were on their feet. Uh, this is another one of those things where it takes a little bit of time to figure out what exactly a device is good for. You know, when the iPad first came out, people said, oh, it's just a big iPod. Uh, but it's really so much more than that. And the Apple Watch is going to continue to grow in much the same way. Yeah, and this this restaurant I was in, I, I got to tell you, it was a very cool experience. We sat down, we came in, all of the order taking was done on iPad, and all of the orders went back to the kitchen from the iPad, and all of the notifications came to the wrist of of the servers. It was really, really seamless. 
the only reason that I noticed it was, first of all, because I look for these things, and, and second of all, because there was one server out of all of the different ones that attended to our table that um, was double-wristing it. It had a Rolex date just on the left wrist and had this, this white-banded silicone smartwatch thing on the other. Hmm. And, you know, I, I know it looks awkward to double-wrist, but that's what he was doing for the job, and the service was outstanding. <laughs> do you think it had to do with the watch? Uh, I, I think it had to do with the the fact that one of the people in our party was recognized as a VIP there, and so they were already on top of their game. But everything was just bang bang. It was it was so dead on. It was such good service. I if if you had to say what were the top five service experiences of your life, that would be one of them. Wow, impressive. You know, maybe, maybe, I'm not sure this will pass muster, but I might put one of the pictures of some of the dishes in the show notes. All right. <laughs> so I want to move on and, and let's get some tips for our listeners. So in the past, we've been able to turn off read receipts for everyone, right? And the read receipts are things like when you send an iMessage to someone, you get back a notification when it was delivered and you get back a little notification under the message that says it's been read. And there are valid reasons for turning these things off, right? Some of them are just the idea of people messaging you out of the blue and you know, using your email address or guessing your email address and swamping you with messages. You don't necessarily want to, to indicate that you're reading them because that encourages people to harass you kind of thing. And the other is just not, you know, whether or not you want people to know. So it's now possible to enable and disable them per message per contact. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just go and tap the uh, little info thing in the top right when you're in a conversation with somebody and you can enable and disable red receipts uh, for an, an individual contact. So before in iOS 9 and prior, it was all or nothing. You either told everybody you're reading their messages or you did not. Um, and now with iOS 10, you can enable it but disable it for specific people. So if you want your mom to know you're reading her messages, but you don't want your boss to know that you're reading his messages, then so be it. Very cool. And it sounds like it's very easy to get to, right? There's there's not a lot to it. Yeah, it's just uh, in the same area where you would you know view a uh, person's contact info, and, and it's kind of a catch-all. Um, if you have them find my friends, it shows their location there, if they're sharing a location, any media that you've shared between each other. If you're in a group chat, um, that would be the same spot where you would name the group chat, uh, stuff like that. So right. So so you get the uh, you tap on the I for that contact from messages, and you get send my location, share my location, do not disturb, send read receipts, yep. and all of the images and attachments that have been transpired in that that conversation. It's kind of a catch all for individual conversations. So yeah, very cool. Now, what is this about iOS 10 split screen view in Safari for iPad? Well, one of the things that uh, people really were clamoring for, especially after the 12.9-inch iPad launched, is uh, the ability to view two websites side-by-side uh, while in Safari. So obviously you can open tabs and all that, but when you have a big screen like that, sometimes you want to uh, look at two things and compare and, and do that sort of stuff. Uh, there are many examples of where this would be useful. For example, if you were doing uh, uh, iWork on the web or a Google Doc or something and you were typing something on one window and wanted to do something else on the other, um, there were ways to do it with using two different browsers, but there wasn't a way to do it within Safari. So starting with iOS 10 on the iPad, you can do dual screen uh, Safari and view two websites at once. 
Now, is that limited just to the iPad Pros, or is that limited to is that open to all iPads? It's uh, recent iPads, so I think even the iPad Air two um, would uh, be able to do it as well. Cool, very cool. Now, that's that's one of the things that makes an iPad feel more like a computer replacement. Yeah, is, is being able to have that side by side of two different web pages. Yeah, it just it, it's one of those things that Apple's slowly been doing, and I'm hoping that you know iOS 10.1, 10.2, 10.3 um, will do more for it uh, to take advantage of the screen real estate uh, because you have this bigger screen and you can do so much more with it. But in many ways, because so much of the development is focused on iPhone, because iPhone is the breadwinner of, of the, the the company's lineup, um, it's nice to see the the iPad getting some specific features to it. And I'm hoping that as we go forward in the, in the coming years, they continue to develop it in that direction. Me too. Now, tell me about the 2017 iPhone. So um, the expectation is that next year's iPhone will be a redesign. So obviously the iPhone 7 is largely the same design as the 6S, which is largely the same as the iPhone 6. Um, the r- reports have consistently said um, and continue to say that basically next year's iPhone is going to have a glass front and a glass back. So it's going to return kind of to the design of the uh, of the iPhone 4 and iPhone 4S, which I'm very happy about because I think the iPhone 4 is the best iPhone design that they've done. Uh, I like that you're wrong, but go ahead with that. Uh, and so this year kind of uh, push back toward a glossy finish like glass uh, with the uh, jet black iPhone 7, uh, but it is prone to scuffs and scratches, which Apple does warn on their website. So glass uh, is a little bit more resilient. And the idea is that next year's phone will have a glass front uh, with an edge to edge screen, curved edge, glass back, curved edges on there. So it feels nice in the hand. You still need to have metal bands on it for antennas and for structure. So um, the latest rumor from uh, everybody's favorite analyst, Ming-Chi Kuo, that came out today is that uh, Apple may continue to differentiate the higher capacity, higher end models by doing a stainless steel band around the outside for the nicer models and an aluminum band for the lower end models. So borrowing a page from the Apple Watch. I mean, you know, I think about the uh, the sort of knock on effects for accessory manufacturers, right? With with the jet black, Apple encourages people to consider getting a case for it to prevent scratches. With glass, you you can scratch glass, and and I've seen iPhone screens get scratched. I mean, cases are always going to be popular. I think in many ways they're a form of identity for people that they allow them to put something on their phone that makes a statement, and. Don't forget that when the iPhone 4 and iPhone 4S were out, people were cracking the back of their phone. It wasn't just... uh, Oh, I remember. Yeah, it wasn't just scratches. So you obviously don't have that problem now because half the phone is metal. But uh, when they switch back to a glass back, you will see a return. Because, I mean, it's just physics at that point. Glass shatters. So uh, it may be more durable. It may be more reliable. It may be more scratch resistant. It may be more drop resistant. But it's going to shatter at some point for people. So... Uh, that's going to be a complaint because there's always something to complain about, apparently. Um, and I would not be surprised. Well, it, it'll be a groundbreaking phone. I mean, literally. <laughs> yeah, right. Honestly, I, I do like the idea, and I, I can't wait to see how it's implemented. Um, tell me about Macs. We haven't seen a whole lot of Macs announcements this year, have we? The expectation is we're going to see new MacBook Pros and maybe the new new MacBook Air. I would not expect anything other than a processor bump on the Air, but uh, new MacBook Pros will lead the way. 
Um, and the latest rumor is second half of October, so late October. Um, the rumor mill is suggesting Apple doesn't want to do another event. So <clears throat> wouldn't be surprised if these just get kind of dropped on us one day. Um, you know, some of the bigger websites like the Wall Street Journal or uh, Recode or something will get to see these under embargo. And then some Tuesday, you'll open up your laptop and go to Apple Insider and see, oh, there's new MacBook Pros out. So um, the expectation is that this year's MacBook Pro will be a complete redesign, thinner chassis, USB-C ports, and replacing the function row of keys with a touch OLED screen, um, which will dynamically change in between apps. So, for example, if you open up pages, maybe you'd have a quick cut, copy, and paste and font change options. Uh, whereas if you open up iTunes, you would have music controls. Um, if you opened up Safari, you may have quick access to bookmarks or something like that. Um, and developers presumably would be able to tap into that as well and make the dynamic screen change based on what they need in their app. Um, and the other expectations are uh, a slightly larger trackpad. And uh, obviously, the latest Intel processors and uh, for the larger 15-inch model on the high-end, uh, a, uh, a AMD uh, graphics card. Um, so, yeah, expect to see that the end of October is the latest. Amazing. And I'm hoping that they they look at things like more RAM and more SSD storage. You know, we've, we've been pretty limited to 16 gigs so far, and I would like to, to see that go up. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't be surprised if you see stuff like that limited to the larger 15-inch model, since that's just kind of the way things are going. Uh, we'll see. Jet black, invisible touch bar control strip, gobs and gobs of RAM, 2 terabyte SSD. That would be pretty incredible. That would be a $6,000 computer. Well, submit your expense reports, you know. <laughs> if you submit your expense reports to corporate, you know, you might be able to do something like that. Maybe. If it might work <laughs> like that. Yeah. Well, this has been the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can read me at Apple Insider and uh, find me on Twitter at this is Neil N E I L. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners for being so kind as to leave good iTunes reviews and and for taking the time to listen all the way through. It's it's really you guys that we do this for, and I do appreciate the positive feedback. Um, join us next week when Neil will be seen wearing a giant helmet of goggles piloting drones around New York City. 